Good morning. Good morning. We'd like to welcome you to church this morning. Please stand and join us as we sing our praises to God together. In my wrestling and in my doubts, in my failures, you won't walk out. Your great love will lead me through. You are the peace in my troubled sea. Oh, you are the peace in my troubled Walking through. 
grace and mercy to us. Thank you that you have no rival, you have no equal, you alone are God. And we've come today to declare your greatness and to bow before you in worship. Thank you for being present with us. Help us to hear you, to see you, to know you. We pray this through the grace of Christ Jesus. Amen. We welcome all of you here to worship today, especially those of you who may be here for Alumni Weekend at the college. Uh, Before you're seated, take a moment, share a word of greeting with others here in worship this morning. So one thing I want to bring to your attention, right after the 11 o'clock service today, we'll be hosting a a picnic. You all are invited, uh, whether you uh, were prepared and have things to bring or not. I'm sure there'll be plenty of food. We'll be meeting in the community room. Hopefully there there won't be any rain, so we can be outside as well. Uh, But uh, we want to invite you to this as we celebrate uh, our year of of Sunday school together, learning, growing, and uh, giving thanks for all the people who have been involved in that process. Good morning. Today's ministry moment focuses on the youth ministry. You should know that I am grateful to God for the opportunity to serve him as the youth pastor here at Houghton Wesleyan Church. I'm also grateful for the youth committee. And while we struggled to meet this past year due in large part to the personal challenges that my own family was facing, uh, these folks have given thoughtful and purposeful leadership to the youth ministry. We're really thankful. Thankful for you guys. Sunday school this year averaged about 30 students a week. And one new thing that we tried is something that we're calling words of wisdom. Four times we invited someone from our church who is uh, on the other end of the age spectrum from our students. Someone that they might not always be rubbing elbows with. And then we had a student interview that person for our class. This has been a fantastic time of fellowship, of hearing stories of God's faithfulness, and of interacting with people from our faith community that we may have seen at church, but might not have met before. These have been very meaningful times. On Tuesday mornings at 7 a.m., we have prayer breakfast. Now, some people would say that teenagers and mornings don't mix well. But this year, we average 24 students a week. And really, all we do is we gather more or less at 7 a.m., we eat pancakes, sing two of the old hymns from the, right from the hymnal a cappella, and spend a few minutes in prayer, and then they're off to school. And there's also a group of about eight or nine people that volunteer and take turns, uh, coming in to help set up chairs and cook and flip pancakes and wash dishes and drive students to school 
If you're here and you're part of that group, would you just stand up? Those of you that cook or for... Okay, nobody here. I'm sure they go to the 11 o'clock service. <clears throat> uh, the backbone of our student ministry is Sunday night life groups. Now, Sunday nights at 6 p.m., we gather first as a large group for games, announcements, celebration of birthdays, sort of the traditional youth group craziness. Turn your hands Good fun. But then, normally, the bulk of our time is spent in small groups. You heard a couple of weeks ago from Kathy Hilscher, who's part of our fantastic team of more than 20 committed small group leaders that are a consistent, nurturing force in the lives of our students. Would those of you that are small group leaders in here, would you stand up? All right. Okay, there's a couple. All right. So, I think they do go to church here, most of them. <laughs> 11 o'clock service must be, okay. Uh, but please, be in prayer for these folks as they walk alongside our students. Now, also, it's well known that students feel loved when they've been fed. And so, we have a list of people who, once or twice a semester, bring snacks for the group. And as a youth leader, I can tell you, I can't tell you how wonderful it is that magically, miraculously, I should say, you know, yummy goodies for 60 students appear in the church kitchen on Sunday nights. It is amazing. And of course, uh, there was a full slate of special events this year, things like Storm the Heights, which is like a huge capture the flag on steroids kind of game. And this is an outreach event for us, happens in October. Our district winter retreat occurs in January. And this is a great time for us to step away from our normal routine and spend some time focusing on God and his word and on his work in our world. 30-hour famine, which we recently had. A big thank you to Kim Poole for spearheading this event. And uh, this year, we set a huge goal for ourselves, $4,000 to raise for children in need. And we didn't quite get there, but we did raise over $3,600. That's the most we've ever, ever raised in the 10 years we've been doing this event. And of course, the mission trip to Puerto Rico is fast approaching on July 2nd. Appreciate your prayers for that trip. We are already deep in the planning for next year. Please pray that God will make our church a place where young people are drawn into transforming relationships with Jesus and with his community of faith. That's us. Pray that our youth will experience Jesus in personal and powerful ways as we worship and serve together. And also pray that God will enable each of us as adults to live our lives with Christ in such a way that young people in our church and community can't help but be drawn to him. Finally, pray for our study of God's word, that this solid foundation will result in students who are effective, lifelong servants of Jesus Christ. Thanks for praying with us. Thanks, John. Uh, thanks for all of the things that he does and all of you who are involved in that ministry. Before um, our children get to youth group, they are uh, smaller and are uh, in the process of that. 
And so this morning we have the privilege of uh, beginning the process of nurturing faith in our little ones by uh, dedicating them to God. Nate and Eileen, God has blessed you with this little one. And today you come to dedicate God's gift back to him. You are here today because of your own faith in Jesus Christ. And in this public act of dedication, you're declaring your desire that he would be raised in the love and the grace of God within the nurturing spirit of his church. In this act, you're welcoming the prayers and the support of the church and declaring your desire that he would early learn the things of God and that his life would be defined by a lifelong commitment to follow God to the very end of his life, that he might receive the promise of eternal life with Jesus Christ. But in order that this may be accomplished, it will be your duty as parents to teach your child early the fear of the Lord, to watch over his education that he may not be led astray by false teachings or doctrines, to direct his mind to the Holy Scriptures as expressing the will and authority of God for all humanity, and to direct his feet to the sanctuary, to restrain him from evil associates and habits, and as much as possible to bring him up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Will you endeavor to do so by the help of the Lord? In Mark's Gospel, chapter 10, we read these words. People were bringing little children to Jesus to have him touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. And when Jesus saw this, he was indignant. And he said to them, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not enter the kingdom, receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms put his hands on them, and bless them. Everybody, what name have you given your child? James James Henry Jacoby, on behalf of your parents, your family, this congregation, we dedicate you to God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. As I mentioned often when we dedicate our children to God, this is really the bringing together of a, a threefold covenant. I sort of see it like a triangle that is surrounding him. And the base of that is God. And we know that God is eternally faithful to him and is at work in his life and heart and mind, even at a very young age. Nate and Eileen have just made their commitment as parents to fill in one side of the triangle to do everything in their power as God gives them grace to nurture him in the faith. But we also have a responsibility as well. You know, often our view of God is shaped by what we experience in the church. And so we have a huge responsibility. So let me invite you to stand and to affirm your commitment to this little one and to his family. As the Church of Jesus Christ... Will you, with the help of God, do everything possible to help James grow in the nurture and grace of Jesus Christ? Will you love him? Will you be a godly witness to him? And will you help him to know and accept the grace of God in his life? If so, answer, we will. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of children. It is such an amazing blessing that you bestow upon us. And today we thank you For James Henry. Thank you for who he is and for his life and for all that you desire him to know and experience of you. We thank you, Father, for 
for the way that you have already blessed his family with his presence and blessed us as a church with his presence. Father, it's our prayer that as he grows and matures, the desire of his heart will be fully for you, for your kingdom. We thank you for the things that you are going to do and are doing in him and for all of the ways in which you are going to use him in the lives of other people as he grows and matures. Father, we pray that your hand of grace and mercy will rest upon him, that all of his days it will be a life lived to honor you, to serve you, to know you, and to experience you. We pray for Nate and Eileen as parents. It's a huge task to be parents, and there are days when it feels overwhelming. Give them grace, every bit of grace that they need to nurture their son in you and in life. Help them as they teach him life lessons. Help them as they answer his questions and as they they help him know who you are and what it means to walk with you every day. And we pray that you you will bless them and their family. We pray, Father, for Elizabeth and Ruth as older sisters, that as they follow you and as they walk with you, they will lead their brother toward you as well. May they as a family know your blessing in the ups and the downs and the struggles and the joys of life. May they sense you near. And Father, help us as a church. Help us, Father, to so love James Henry that his heart will be turned to you and toward your church. Give us grace in the structured moments of of nursery and, and children's church and Sunday school and other programs. But Father, also help us to nurture his faith in those serendipitous moments that you bring. Just those moments of loving him and caring for him throughout his life. Father, thank you for the gift of James Henry. We give him back to you with joy and thanksgiving and confidence because we know who you are. We place him in your hands and give thanks through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. I'd like to invite our ushers forward as we give back to God through our tithes and offerings.
As we turn to the Lord in prayer today, we have not only burdens and concerns that we bring to Him, but also thanksgiving. We, uh, we want to give thanks to, to the Lord for uh, healing work that He has done in Gus Prinzel this week. And I know a number of you have been praying for Him, and I'm sure there are others that uh, are sensing that work of God in their lives. We give thanks again for, for the children God's blessed us with this morning in the, the rose for Joaquin Gabriel uh, Raquel May. We give thanks for that gift of new life. And this week, uh, Jerry David Oden was born as well. And we give thanks for, uh, for bringing him into this world too. Uh, we have so many things for which to give thanks to God. And so as we pray together, we want to thank God, even as we pour out our hearts to God in, in burdens and concerns, because we believe, we know that God is at work and His grace is sufficient. Holy Father, we want to thank you today for all of the good things that you are doing in us, in our lives, in those connected to us in this world. We thank you, Father, for the healings that we are seeing, seeing you at work in ways that only you can do. We thank you for the healing for Gus this week and for others connected to us. We thank you for the gift of new life. We thank you for Joaquin and and bringing him into this world in the last month and and for the celebration of his life. We thank you for bringing Jerry into this world this week. And and we pray, Father, that for all of these little ones, even as, as we have prayed for James Henry this morning as well, we thank you for the gift of our children. And we pray that you will help us to nurture them, that we will be committed to them and love them as we help them to know you. We thank you, Father, for for being at work in, in all of the struggles of our lives as well. Thank you for being with us in our grief and our loss to bring comfort and healing. We thank you, Father, for the work that you are doing in in those who are struggling with health issues. We thank you, Father, for your healing grace and for your continued work in Florence Tuber and Dan Gurley, Rosalind Danner, Isabella Doherty, for Tim Nichols and and Gus and Louise Princell and Nancy Cole, Peter Lingenfelter and Cheryl O'Brien, Doris Asepian and Isla Shea and Sheldon Emerson and Bill Getty, Mike Raybuck and Bev Rett and Emily Cricklar and others. Father, we thank you for the healing work that you are accomplishing in them. We thank you, Father, for the work that you're doing in our relationships to to bring restoration out of brokenness. We thank you for your grace for the future, that you are faithful and that you reveal yourself to us. We thank you for all of the ways that you are at work in our lives. We thank you, Father, for, for your work in, in our nation and in our world, in our church. Thank you for the youth group. As we've just seen these pictures and heard about the things you're doing, we, we thank you for what you're doing in each life of our youth group. We thank you, Father, for the work you're doing, not only in our church, but in churches around us. We thank you for your grace upon the Belmont First Baptist Church and Pastor Bill Matthews. Continue to bless them and encourage them and and make them a witness to their community and beyond.
Father, we thank you for the things that you're doing in places of tragedy and disaster, bringing hope and healing to your people, to your spirit. Father, as we think about our world, we can be overwhelmed by the struggles and the pain and the burdens, but we believe that you are at work in every place. Father, we thank you for what you're doing for refugees all around the world. Continue to work in their lives, bringing safety and security. We thank you for bringing peace amidst places of threats and war and violence. We thank you for what you're going to do in the summit this week in Singapore. We thank you for your grace at work. We thank you that you are at work in places that we couldn't quite imagine. Father, as we think about this summit, we are reminded of the struggles of our brothers and sisters in North Korea. And we ask, Father, that that you will give them grace to serve you in very, very difficult circumstances. Father, bring freedom, bring hope. And may they bear witness to you in every experience. And Father, we thank you for what you're doing with Dan and Kathy Moore as they go once again to Perm, Russia. May they know your grace upon them, their ministry, their work, their interactions. And may more and more fruit come out of their work and their service there. Thank you, Father, for your mercies with us today. Thank you for your anointing upon Sarah as she preaches today. And thank you for speaking into our lives through this time of worship. We offer it to you in the name of Jesus Christ, remembering the prayer that he teaches his disciples to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. The scripture reading today is Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, so that we can with reverence serve you. I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits. And in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord. More than the watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all of their sins. At this time, children may now be dismissed for Children's Church and Junior Church. stand with us. If faith can move 
very good morning to you all. Would you please pray with me? Lord, as we hear and consider your written word this morning, would you please give us ears to hear and open our hearts to what you might have to say to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you please turn to the person next to you and tell them about the last time you tossed and turned your way through the night? 30 seconds. even have to call you to attention. So what was that like? Uh, You were lying there wishing that morning would just hurry up and get here already. Maybe you were having trouble sleeping, uh, but you didn't want to just get up and, well, be up in the middle of the night. So you laid there and stared at the ceiling, or uh, you tried some breathing exercises, Or my favorite trick for turning off my mind and falling back asleep. Let's see if I can name a flower for every alphabet of the every letter of the alphabet, or maybe an animal, or um, maybe a fruit. So if you get bored during the sermon, there's your. (laughs) Or maybe you were tossing and turning through the night because you were ill or you were in pain, and lying there was just plain hard, physically difficult. And morning would at least bring another dose of medicine and the routine of a new day to take your mind off of your suffering. Or maybe uh, you were so excited for what was going to happen in that new day that the night was just unending and you couldn't sleep until, you know, you drift off an hour before the alarm goes away. Have you ever been desperate for morning to come when you weren't even in bed? About a week and a half ago, I spent the night in a freezing airport terminal, trying to sleep on a hard chair because United Airlines wouldn't give me a hotel room, being woken up every 15 minutes by an announcer telling me to report unattended baggage, twice by toddlers who had escaped their travel leashes to crawl over my row of chairs, And once, by the panic, suddenly that my suitcase had just been stolen, when actually my feet were propped up on it. (laughs) Seven hours. And even though I was exhausted, I was so glad when morning came, because it meant the coffee shop would open, and I could get something warm to drink, and then it would just be another hour until the ticket counter opened, and I could drop off my suitcase, and then the gate would be assigned, and I could actually finally get on the plane and be one step closer to Houghton. That journey ended up taking 42 hours. Well... I was learning to wait in a new way. We're dwelling in the Psalms this summer, and today's Psalm invites us to learn how to wait well in a variety of ways. It has another image of being eager for sunrise. Would you please turn with me to Psalm 130?
I drilled it into my preaching students this spring that if you ask people to turn to the passage, you give them time to get there. Psalm 130. The psalm describes the poet's longing for God in these terms. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. Watchmen in Israel were stationed high on a watchtower or at a checkpoint overlooking a strategic road. They patrolled the streets of a city or they guarded the gates of a palace throughout the night. And for them, the first rays of the morning sun meant that warmth and food and sleep were nearly theirs. They could get off their feet and quit peering into the darkness, stop listening for every sound, and retire with the confidence that they had kept everything safe for another night. And they have served their master well. But here, our poet wants the Lord to show up even more than those watchmen want their morning. Why is the psalmist waiting for God to come? Because he is in deep distress. The psalm opens with one of the most beautiful laments in all of scripture, and you might read along with me. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. Would you literally read that out loud with me, please? Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. I don't know whether you know it or not, but you just told God to sit up and pay attention but you said it in scripture language. (laughs) Just what the depths are for this psalmist are unstated. The word in Hebrew refers to the waters of the deep sea, which was a frightening place to people in the ancient world. A place of chaos and unknown darkness. These waters signify the deepest distress, that state of panic or despair that some of us have been plunged into at one time or another in our lives. That rock in your stomach when you discover that the bank account is empty and payday is still two weeks away. Or when you know you do not have enough time to finish the final project and you are going to fail the class. Or when the doctor calls and asks, are you alone? Can you find someone to be with you? Because she has bad news about that shadow on the x-ray. Or when your water breaks, but your due date is still 10 weeks away. Out of the depths of our suffering and panic, a cry for help comes clawing its way out of our throats, straight into the listening ears of God. These Hebrew verb forms, here, be attentive, can sometimes be translated with exclamation points, and I think that is the sense here. The psalmist knows he will be heard, but in his desperation, he cannot be calm and reverential Instead, demanding that the Lord listen. Pay attention, God. 
Hear me, won't you please? Lord, are you listening? Please, God, mercy, you've just got to save me. Like many of the lament psalms, this one preserves very little dignity for the speaker, who is overwhelmed by his suffering and will not be ignored by his God. He has nothing else to lose, and so he assaults the doors of heaven with less than the usual measure of reverence and decorum that most of us have been taught to take into our prayer life. After the initial eruption of despair that sends him pleading, the psalmist seems to realize where his pleas have led him, into the very courtroom of the holy God, where he is immediately aware of his own sinfulness. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, so that we can, with reverence, serve you. We sort of expect this turn, don't we? I mean, suffering often does turn our attention to our sinfulness. Uh, We begin to wonder if we have earned our tragedy. I think of the man I read about who confessed to his priest, I deserve this cancer because I was taking life for granted. Or the friend who asked me, what if God made me infertile because he knew I couldn't be a patient mother? Or the student years ago who said to me, if only I tried harder to be a morning person, then I wouldn't have depression now. Or the boy who whispered to my pastor friend right before she started the funeral service, I told my mom I hated her and now she's dead. Did I kill her? In moments of calamity, we all have the terrifying suspicion that we deserve exactly what is happening to us. But astonishingly, this is not the direction the poet takes. He is fully aware of his sinfulness, but even more confident in his God. This God inspires such confidence because he refuses to play the divine bookkeeper and instead offers forgiveness even before the psalmist has demonstrated appropriate reverence. I'll read this again. Notice the order of events. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, so that we can, with reverence, serve you. We are forgiven before ever We do an ounce of service for our Lord. The psalmist is so assured of this forgiveness, so certain that his failings will not keep God from coming to him, that he doesn't dwell at all on the question of why he is suffering. He just wants God to show up and save him, and he is sure God will, so he settles in to wait and to worship the God who forgives. On a side note, and as an Old Testament professor, I cannot help but observe the location of this astounding confidence in God's forgiveness. We are reading a text in the Old Testament. Jesus Christ would not be born into that little manger for several hundred more years, but this Israelite poet knew already that God forgives first 
before we have deserved it. By the time we get to verse 5, and I hope you'll let your eyes wander there now, we have undergone a subtle but important shift. The desperation of that demanding cry from the depths has settled into confident anticipation. And so, in verses 5 and 6, he waits and waits and hopes and waits some more. I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits. And in his word, I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. And what is the nature of this waiting on God? It is the waiting of the watchmen, that eager waiting, that longing for something that always comes. That's the real point of the watchmen analogy. Morning always comes. The watchman on his aching feet is able to wait for that streak of gray on the horizon to take one more round on his duties because he knows morning will come. It makes me think of our kids, or at least Miriam now, um, and Joseph when he was younger. When the grandparents were coming to visit from Kansas City or Colorado for Christmas, And they would have days of driving before they got here. And in the meantime, we would have cleaned the house from top to bottom and baked everything in the kitchen, everything in our pantries, wrapped all of the presents, decorated the house from floor to ceiling, and there is nothing left to do but wait for Grandma and Grandpa. And when the moment they wake up on that arrival day, Miriam's first words... When are Grammy and Grandpa coming? How much longer until Grandma and Pop-Pop get here, Mama? Why aren't they here yet? What is taking them so long? Where are they? And when I say, I'm sorry, honey, they just stopped at the Cuba cheese shop. They'll be here in an hour. Text them and see if they'll get here sooner. Can't you call them? Where are they? By the time they arrive, the children are practically vibrating with anticipation. You know that that feeling. There is no real fear that Grammy and Grandpa won't actually come. Joe and Miriam know they will be here. And when they come, it will be wonderful. So it is with waiting on the Lord. And I want you to notice what it is that this Lord brings with him. The phrasing is brilliant, but again, very subtle. This Lord that our poet is awaiting comes bringing three things. With him there is forgiveness, in verse 4. But also, with him is unfailing love, in verse 7. That's that chesed, the fiercely loyal love that you may have heard me talk about before. And finally, with him is full redemption, Or literally, great power to redeem. What an entourage. The Lord comes bringing forgiveness, love, and redemption. No wonder the poet hopes in the word of this God from the depths of despair and chaos, this coming Lord calls us into hope and confidence because this Lord can and will Achieve our salvation. 
This coming Lord forgives and never fails to love and has power to redeem anything. And therefore, we need not be afraid that our sin will keep us bound, keep us apart from God. But another shift has occurred in the, in the lines of this psalm. The psalmist started speaking directly to God in the beginning. But from verse 5 on, he is speaking to others. I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits, and in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. He is testifying, if you will, in verse 5. But he is not content to leave it there with his own personal experience of nighttime vigil. He emerges into the light of day with a call on his lips. Verse 7. Israel... Put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all of their sins. In these eight short verses, we get a fairly tidy summary of what happens when the gospel goes to work in a person's life. Calling out to the Lord from the desperation of sinful chaos leads to the assurance of forgiveness and reverent worship, which leads to longing and waiting for God to come, and then to proclamation, calling others to hope in the Lord who redeems. And it seems important to note at this point that there is no final resolution in this psalm. The Lord is awaited and trusted, depended on, But his arrival and the redemption of Israel are still in the future as far as the psalmist is concerned. In light of this, the final verse is poignant. As the psalmist waits, he calls others to join him in his hoping. Hope is always a risk. You might end up looking stupid. But inviting others to hope with you is even riskier. If hope goes unfulfilled, you have invited them into your risk, into your foolishness. Despite this, I don't actually think that hoping and waiting for the Lord are meant to be a solo activity. I know that in some difficult seasons of my life, I would not have been able to sustain my hope in Christ on my own. It was the hope of my friends And their confidence that God was forgiving and loving me, redeeming me and my circumstances, that helped me to cry out to God from my depths. And to look again toward the dawn of morning, so to speak. One of the great gifts of waiting on God, in my experience, has been the discovery of the companions that God has sent me while I wait. I have learned to ask, will you please hope for me? for a little while, while we wait. And likewise, I have been able to say to others, I will hold your hope for you for a little while until you are strong enough to take it back. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul and Timothy 
send an interesting message of encouragement to the waiting church. I will read it for you. 2 Corinthians 4, beginning in verse 13. Since we have that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. All this is for your benefit so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. These believers in Corinth are like us. They have already learned of the redemption of Christ through his resurrection. But also like us, they are awaiting his second coming, waiting for the completion of his saving work, including the final resurrection of all believers. Paul and Timothy could not envision that resurrection without the Corinthian brothers and sisters being present on that glorious day. In fact, the extension of God's grace to more and more people while they waited kept them from losing heart. If we are to wait well, we must invite others into our hope. If you would allow me to ask a rather pointed question now, I'd like to return to Psalm 130. In what ways might we pray this psalm now? Now that we know Christ has already come to redeem Israel and to graft us into that tree. When we say, along with the psalmist, that we are, quote, waiting on the Lord, what do we really mean these days? I think there are several ways we use this phrase, and all of them are right in at least one way. Sometimes we mean that we are waiting for direction from God, for confirmation or guidance for a particular situation that we are facing, a decision to be made. Just the other day, a friend asked me about a decision I was trying to make, and I responded with, well, I'm waiting on the Lord. You know that that meaning, right? Sometimes we mean that our prayers for a certain situation haven't been answered yet, and so we're waiting for God to intervene. Sometimes we mean simply that we are trying to live in a posture of service and openness to the work of the Spirit in us. All of these, as I say, are, I think, perfectly legitimate uses of the phrase, but I wonder if there's another, more specific way in which we should also be waiting for the Lord. Do we ever really mean, as I think the psalmist did and as I'm sure Paul and Timothy did, that we are actually waiting on the Lord to come. Yes, with forgiveness and love and redemption in his luggage, but actually to come, to arrive, to show up. Do you really believe the Lord is coming again? Paul says 
all of our faith depends on that belief that the resurrection is yet to come and that we will join in it, in that final resurrection. How might this shape my hope, our waiting, our life together here in Allegheny County if we actually begin to think of our Lord as someone on his way, like Joseph and Miriam waiting for Grandma and Pop-Pop? If our waiting on the Lord wasn't a spiritualized euphemism, or a metaphor, or a pietist way of saying, I'm trying to be patient with God. If our waiting on the Lord was actually waiting for the imminent arrival of the Lord who always comes, and comes bringing forgiveness and love and redemption, could we join the children in our lives in their eagerness? Could we cry, come, Lord Jesus? I'm not actually going to answer these questions for you today. I want you to live with them for a little bit. What would it do for us to think of God in Christ as being on his way to us? Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. stand as we sing together.
In light of our soon and coming king, go in peace to love and serve him with gladness and singleness of heart. Amen. Thank you.